Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. What is it going to take to get off fossil fuels at the pace the climate needs? The last year, flooding and wildfires and extreme heat hasn't done it. Code Red reports from global scientists haven't done it. Some say it will take the urgency and ambition of a wartime effort. Well, there is a war now. On the front lines, people in Ukraine are fleeing Russian bombs. Globally, oil prices are skyrocketing, and there are rumblings of an energy overhaul, with the U.S. and others banning oil from one of the world's largest producers. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports, and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. Hearing U.S. President Joe Biden talk this week, it felt like renewable energy and electric cars were being recast as patriotic. Tyrants like Putin won't be able to use fossil fuels as weapons against other nations. This is the goal we should be racing toward. Hi, I'm Lisa Johnson, in for Laura Lynch. Today on What on Earth, we bring you three stories, from Europe to the IPCC to the foothills of Alberta. And we'll start with a plea from Western Ukraine. The morning that Russia invaded Ukraine was February 24th. Svetlana Romanko was asleep at home with her husband and two kids. Uh, we just woke up, actually, with my family at our apartments. Two explosions. She lives in the West, in Ivano-Frankivsk. It's one of many cities whose airports were hit by Russian missiles that morning. Throughout the country, air raid sirens, martial law. Romanko was physically safe, but angry. Fossil fuels has become a weapon of mass destruction. It became so clear to me at that moment when I've seen this wealthy Russian economy based on uh, export of oil and gas. I've just seen the another side of it, another side of this fossil fuel profit. And I, I, I thought that we have to stop it. Romanko is an environmental lawyer and activist and knows that oil and gas make up 60% of Russia's exports and a huge part of its wealth. When we reached her, she was driving to bring supplies to refugees arriving in her city from the east. In a country at war, she said this was exactly the time to talk about climate and security. I'm speaking publicly. I'm speaking to global media just to let the world know that this war is fossil fuel and we need to stop it once and forever. So is the world listening? Well, you heard Joe Biden earlier. There are concrete steps to get off Russian fuel but that could go two ways. Maybe you reduce demand for fossil fuels, or you find more oil and gas somewhere else, or maybe a bit of both. Europe is too dependent on Russian oil and gas to ban it immediately, but it did release a plan this week to cut imports significantly by two-thirds this year and rapidly scale up investment in renewables. I am working with a think tank called Agora Energiewende. So we work on policy solutions for the clean energy transition. We're very popular right now. 
That's Michelle Hall. She's an energy policy analyst who's been watching the situation closely. We reached her at home in Brussels. So we often hear that we need, for the climate crisis, you know, wartime response, that kind of urgency and ambition. Do you think that's kind of what's happening in Europe right now? Yes, yeah. Uh, it is amazing to see what's going on in Europe at the moment every single day. Uh, I mean, this is history. And, uh, you know, it, it basically it's foreign policy woven into energy policy. It's like oil price shock plus foreign policy. That's what it is. And basically what, what you see now is before it was, okay, renewables and energy efficiency that we need that for decarbonization and gas is there for security of supply. That was our world before the 24th of February. And now it has hit us. We actually also need renewables and energy efficiency for our security of supply. Gas is not secure. Now, the finance minister of your home country, Germany, recently said that renewable energy is freedom energy. What is it like to hear that? I'm jealous of whoever came up with this slogan because I think it's brilliant. It basically, in a few words, captures to what extent German policies have changed, especially Germany. And you will remember the Nord Stream 2 saga, this new pipeline that Germany built, because traditionally they had a very close relationship with Russia and they were convinced trading with them will also bring peace. But uh, other EU member states further to the east were always very skeptical of this and, and were afraid that this would undermine their energy security. And so basically in a, in a time of a week, the entire German policy has been changed. And it is interesting that out of all people, the, our finance minister who comes from the Liberal Party said that because they were actually relatively critical of the vast amounts of money we spend in Germany, uh, you know, uh, years ago for the first generation of, uh, of renewables that were quite expensive still. And so him saying it really shows to what degree things have changed, I would say. Yeah, it's like renewable energy got patriotic. Also, heat pumps are patriotic now. I don't know if you've read that also. So heat pumps are also patriotic. Yeah. So the European Commission this week released a roadmap to get Europe off Russian fossil fuels over time. How do you feel about the plan? It's a mixed bag. Um, we think it underestimates to what extent we need to reduce on the demand side. It seems very optimistic and basically only think about the supply side. With supply side, we mean just, you know, what goes into a plant. So for example, uh, there's a high bet on LNG imports to replace what we currently get through the pipelines, but that's a very tight market with long-term contracts with extremely high prices. Uh, so we feel that there's not sufficiently reflection of really the extent to which we can use energy efficiency measures, both short-term and long-term. We've talked about accelerating the renewable energy transition as, as part of this plan, as part of what's going on in, in Europe right now. But, you know, also in the plan is, is finding oil and gas from places, like you're mentioning, that aren't Russia. Um, 
what do you make of, of that piece of the puzzle where it's actually looking for more fossil fuel sources? Yeah, exactly. That's the main point we see as a problem. And I saw someone on Twitter describing it quite nicely, saying um, this is a plan to get us off Russian gas, but it's not a plan to get us off gas. And by still having gas in the picture, you're basically using precious money that you could use right now uh, to make the full change and basically, you know, for example, implement a rule across Europe uh, that you can no longer install in new buildings gas boilers um, and go for heat pumps. But instead, gas is still in the picture. We've seen record energy prices here in Canada, and I, I know they've shot up there too. How does the current price of fossil fuels compare to the cost of speeding up the energy transition? We have by now what we pay for our imports is so much higher. Uh, the prices have increased even higher now. And only the, the difference that we pay for our imports would be enough to fund the annual additional investments in our transport and energy sector in Europe right now. Only the difference, not the full amount. Interesting. So how hopeful are you that this moment will lead to a quicker energy transition in Europe? I mean, at the moment, it goes into all directions. But generally, I think um, it is clear to everyone that what was before right for decarbonization is also right for, you know, long-term energy independence. There's no way around this. But uh, it's true that at the moment, the energy price issue is really starting to be dominant in itself as well, you know, and it's, it's for both for the consumers, but also for our energy intensive industry. So for the moment, it goes into all directions, but I think the long-term trend, no one denies. Hmm, what a moment. You know, it feels like we've been wondering for years, when is the moment happening that the energy transition really starts to pick up and happen at the pace that we're told it has to? Um, felt like two years ago when the pandemic began, that might be the moment. So maybe it's this one. We don't know. We do know that report after report have been telling us the window to act is closing. There was another one last month from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Now an author on that report is saying enough is enough. Bruce Glavovich and two colleagues published a commentary in January called The Tragedy of Climate Change Science. They're calling for a moratorium on climate change research until governments act urgently on the problem. Glavovich is a professor in the School of People, Environment and Planning at Massey University in New Zealand. Hello. Good day. Hello. So why are you and your colleagues calling for a moratorium on climate change research? Well, thank you very much. Um, we actually wrote the original piece back in February 2020, and it arose because of our experience working with local communities in New Zealand and Australia, where whilst efforts to address exposure to climate impacts are very important at the local level, there are forces beyond the local level that make it very difficult to counter some of the drivers of climate impacts. And we recognize that if we just continued to do the kind of 
climate change science that essentially documents the problem, we're not going to enable the kind of change that is required. The IPCC is not simply a science body. It is the interface between science and policy, and for over 30 years has provided a synthesis of our understanding of the nature of climate change, its impacts, and the kind of responses that are needed. And governments have accepted these reports, and we're now in the sixth cycle, and the latest Working Group 2 report concludes that the cumulative scientific evidence is unequivocal. Climate change is a threat to human well-being and planetary health, and any further delay in concerted anticipatory global action on adaptation and mitigation will miss a brief and rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all. What that finding really does is it reinforces the conclusion that we reached that doing yet another assessment, simply spending another six or seven years to produce yet another report that says yet again what this report is saying is frankly irresponsible. Now, you were an author on the most recent IPCC report. I feel like I'm really hearing some frustration in your voice about what hasn't been acted on. Can you speak a bit about the experience putting all this time into these reports and then seeing sort of where they go? Yeah. Um, frustration is an understandable human response, but I think it goes much deeper than that. I think that what we have seen from the climate change science community is a series of warnings about the crisis that we face at a planetary scale. And so um, my two colleagues, co-authors, and I continue to be committed to working with local communities to make a difference at the local level. But we believe we also have a bigger responsibility or an additional responsibility. Our work is not a criticism of the IPCC and it is not a criticism of climate change scientists. What is problematic at a fundamental level is despite over three decades of clear evidence, politicians have failed to mobilize the action required to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and associated global warming. Scientists are mothers fathers, citizens, community members. And so we do our work as human beings seeking to make a difference. And so our effort with this paper is primarily aimed at the climate change science community with the endeavor and hope that we would call for and mobilize a pause to have some introspection and reflection on what our role is. And in particular, we do not believe that yet another seventh assessment is an appropriate course of action. I know that you got a bit of pushback initially on, on Twitter as people were reacting maybe to the headline, as some people do. And some of the criticism was, well, isn't this nice to say from a place, you know, a developed country that um, already has a lot of data on what's going on? What about the global south where they're feeling the worst impacts of climate change and have the least data about what's happening. You know, what are you saying about that kind of climate science continuing? That's an excellent question. And we're excruciatingly aware that, you know, we're three kind of middle-aged white males sitting in New Zealand and Australia. The need to build capability, to build understanding is absolutely imperative. That's why 
I said at the very beginning, the need for scientists to continue to work alongside with and for local communities is essential. This is an additional responsibility, we believe, at a wider kind of climate change science community level, where calling a halt to science as usual through the IPCC would be a very powerful statement to the political arena to reconsider how to move forward. And if anything, our hope is that that would lead to a more responsive and morally defensive action on behalf of, with and for, marginalized and vulnerable communities. Because the people who are suffering under current climate change impacts, let alone future impacts, are typically those who are most exposed and most vulnerable and importantly, who've contributed least to the drivers of global warming in the first place. The question is, how might the IPCC help translate its own findings into action in the next decade? And how might the climate change science community, in dialogue with policy advisors, help to craft a more fit-for-purpose IPCC? So that it's no longer an anachronism of the 80s and 90s, but is ready to confront the challenge that we face right now. Climate change is not a green issue. It's an issue about the future of humanity. It is about our identity. It's about the future of life on Earth. It's about the species that we share this planet with. And so uh, we need to find better ways to communicate that it is a phenomena that is unfolding now and we have a narrow window of time to avert what is going to be a sentence for successive generations of people and those we share the planet with. Bruce Glavovich, thank you. Thank you so much. You know, he is not the first scientist that I've talked to on this show who's worked on these big reports and felt such almost despair at documenting the decline and not seeing an action taken. What do you think about this call for a moratorium? Send us an email, earth at cbc.ca. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we'll end the show back in Canada with how a massive outcry made a difference. It's an update to a story we did in January about the fight over the future of coal mining in Alberta. Two years ago, the province retracted a 1976 policy that protected parts of the iconic eastern slopes of the Rockies. Our next guest had been fighting to get that protection back in place. Hello, um, my name is First Deals Woman. My English name is Latasha Cafro. I am a member of the Blood Tribe, um, which is located in what's currently known as Southern Alberta. Um, and I am the founder of the Nitsitibi Water Protectors. When we last spoke, 
Calfrobe was waiting on two reports from Alberta's Coal Policy Committee. Well, those just came out, and after two years, a thousand emails, and dozens of meetings, there is now a halt on all new coal mining in or near the iconic eastern slopes of Alberta. So you've been advocating for an end to coal mining in Alberta for more than a year. How do you feel right now about this outcome for the eastern slopes? Um, the best way to describe it is cautiously optimistic. Um, it does not end all coal mining, but it definitely halts a lot of the development in some really intact ecosystems um, that are near and dear to my heart. These lands um, fall within the traditional and ancestral lands of the Nitsitibi or the Blackfoot Confederacy. So these are the lands that my ancestors have walked since time immemorial. It's where, you know, all generations, as far as our family memory can go back, um, have grown, have drank these waters. And it's where my children um, are nourished from these lands and waters as well today. So let's talk about these new reports from the Coal Policy Committee. What's the optimistic part of the cautiously optimistic? I mean, you can definitely tell that the Coal Committee was committed to listening to Albertans, to listening to Indigenous groups that presented before them. It's also really great to see Indigenous consultation and engagement as its own recommendation and not just in a footnote or in a land acknowledgement at the beginning of the document. So if I'm understanding it right, what's happening now is that there's no new exploration for now. Could still happen in the future, but there's some steps that would have to be taken, like land use planning and meaningful involvement of Indigenous communities. Is that right? It's not a fully closed door, is it? It's not a fully closed door, which is, you know, the cautious side of being optimistic. It's really great that the government, you know, took that report um, and decided to halt all exploration in all land categories, um, not just category one and category two. So that's really great to see. It means that, you know, there won't be trucks rolling in May 1st in the eastern slopes, you know, doing drill holes and clear cutting trees. So that is really great. It also kind of just kicks the can further down the road where this was a really big missed opportunity um, for the coal committee and for the government of Alberta to say, you know what, we heard you, there should be no more coal. You know, we're going to let current operating mines finish up their projects, but everything else is off the table. That is kind of what we would have hoped to see out of this. Albertans and First Nations were really clear. They don't want coal development in the eastern slopes. Now, you mentioned some categories of land, and for listeners across the country, they might not be familiar with that, but there was sort of a, a patchwork across this ecosystem of what was allowed where. And how does that jive with how you and, um, and your First Nations community views that land? Yeah, so from a Blackfoot um, perspective and worldview, all land is sacred. It, it holds a spirit and meaning and its own agency, and so when we think about land categorization of priority areas, that doesn't align at all with a Blackfoot worldview. You mentioned the committee's recommendation for Indigenous involvement and consultation. We know that that can mean a lot of different things, um, varying levels of actual input. How did you feel reading that? Well, like I said, I think it's a big win to have it in there. It also um, a little concerning because in the coal committee report it does reference like 
using Alberta's kind of predetermined tools for Indigenous consultation. And there's a lot of flaws in that process itself. For example, usually only tribal governments are recognized as stakeholders are those in need of consultation, when we know that that extends so much deeper. Can you paint a picture of what meaningful involvement of Indigenous communities would look like? Yeah, I think this is really a space for reimagining and going back to traditional practices. You know, myself being a a Ganaki or a blood tribe woman, um, there used to be a role for people like me in decision making and in our societies. And because of this colonial project um, in what's known as Canada, it has removed that voice of Indigenous women from governance systems, from political decision making, um, from land use planning, but also, you know, moving into a co-creation model. In this area here and where the Rocky Mountains fall, we fall within Treaty Number 7. And for those unfamiliar with treaty, treaty signed by nations, which means we enter into nation-to-nation agreements. And through that treaty, we agree to share and prosper together on this, on this land. And so as we move into a co-creative space, I would really hope to see, you know, one, um, accurate funds for First Nations communities to engage in this process. Two, I would really like to see again the involvement of diverse voices within our communities. So our youth, our women, two-spirited individuals really taking the lead on these as those were our traditional caretakers of the land. I'll pick up on that idea of working together because one thing that stood out uh, in this movement against coal mining that you've been a part of was how widespread the outcry was, not just First Nations, but also ranchers, anglers, city dwellers. And I wonder what lessons you might think there is in this for different groups and communities coming together for a common environmental goal. There's a lot of lessons to be learned here. Um, Some of my key learnings out of all of this process have been around what is meaningful allyship and how do we not just talk about it, but actionize it. Um, So like I said, I've worked with a lot of non-Indigenous NGOs, um, politicians, um, (laughs) activists, everything in between ranchers um, in this process. And it's been really interesting. And it's been a really good opportunity for them and for me to have some of these deep conversations about treaty, about Indigenous stewardship practices, um, about our shared connections to these lands. You know, I'm not going to say that ranchers don't have a deep connection to the land. If they're, you know, five generations here on these lands, they do. And that connection that they're feeling is what's tying them. And that's what's motivating them to stand out against coal. And those connections are real. What I am going to, you know, elaborate on is that that connection that Albertans feel to this land, imagine that (laughs) over 20,000 years (laughs) of connections um, versus, you know, the 150 that settlers have been here. And so those connections, we're acknowledging that you have them and that that's a shared space where we need to explore and start thinking about land and land use together. Natasha Kafrobe, thank you so much for joining us and updating our audience on, on what's going on there. Thank you very much for having me. You know, with everything going on right now, it's kind of nice to end the show with a story about people working together. 
This episode was produced by Serena Renner and Rachel Sanders. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Our senior producer this week is Molly Siegel. I'm Lisa Johnson, in for Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.